Warm Daniel's Policy, I'm Charlene. I'm Crispin. And this is our Week in Review. Daniel's Policy is a channel aimed at intelligent people where we discuss important issues facing life and society. How are you, Crispin? I'm excellent. Yes. What's been happening in the past week? Uh, well, we've gone over 900 subscribers, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that And some of our you know videos have been really popular, which is great. Yeah. Uh, I have continued with the diet. So uh, in diet round two, we are sticking pretty rigidly to it mm. and, and progress has been swift and solid. Well, how have you changed since like diet one to diet two? Uh, diet, well, as I said, diet one, I went away and it all went to hell. Yeah. Uh, when I went away, uh, ate a lot on a trip and then went camping with friends. So I ate a lot more there. And so it all, it all kind of the mm. disruption to my plans went awry. Yeah. Second time around, I was also more committed because I was like, no, we've got to absolutely do this. I've said it publicly. We've got, <laughs> you know, clear goals. Uh, and I have set things up in terms of diet plans and so forth much more rigidly uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so progress, but we're not there yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, not not celebrating just yet. Uh, and I'm hosting a pool party mm-hmm. tomorrow. Um, so it's middle of winter here, but uh, there's like a heated spa in, in where I'm living. So... Uh, we'll be able to still go outside and barbecue and and have mm. a proper catch up with friends. I've got a friend who's going away uh, to study overseas, so we're sort of saying goodbye to them. Mm. Uh, the poker's been good. I really enjoyed it. Um, the, with the easing of restrictions, uh, poker has kind of come back to life a little bit. Yeah, do you uh, find the casinos busier? Much busier. Yeah. Way way busier. Uh, so I. I I prefer live poker, I think. it's. It, I like getting up and going someplace to do it. So, you know, although I like online poker for the speed and, and you know, the games are, you know, much more challenging and uh, many more variable options and so on, not, not nearly as much waiting. You can play multiple tables and things. There's a lot of advantages to online poker. I understand completely why a lot of people prefer it. Yeah. But I find just the... You know, the, the the worker in me needs to get up and go someplace, you know, get dressed, yeah. you know, organize my hygiene and so on and, and then go out and travel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that separation between like life and work, <laughs> like have to go outside and make effort and be like present to the world rather than like roll out of bed like on the computer. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're social animals, and it. I mean, I, I'm an introvert. I really need my own space. I couldn't imagine living with other people, really. But uh, still, we mm. we need to interact with others to be part of the social yeah. fabric of our communities. Yeah, has poker been more challenging now that more people are playing? No, no, easier also because because when you've got um, more people at the table okay. and. Like it's, it's something I'm more familiar with. When we were all playing shorthanded with all these additional restrictions and stuff, it was very difficult. Mm. Uh, it was very hard to overcome the house rake. So uh, every you know hand that you play, the house takes some money out of it. Uh, and thus, if you're shorthanded, very, very hard. Uh, and then if you're already shorthanded, one person goes to a bathroom, one person goes for a cigarette or something, it, it the whole table can break. So mm. it's really nice having you know proper game. Um, and also with the easing of restrictions, the casino life is more back to what it was. So as I said, mm. like more busy. So you see lots of other people there going out for all different kinds of reasons. Mm. People are much happier. Uh, but this is, could be temporary because, uh, you know, New South Wales is, is absolutely wrecked with cases at the moment. Uh, and Victoria uh, in trouble. So it's there, there are challenges um mm. still with with the pandemic but but right now um we're doing okay 
Yeah, exactly. Just like enjoying the freedom that we have right now. <laughs> It does have a kind of a night before battle feel to it. I mean, Charlene keeps mentioning, okay, the next lockdown is just tomorrow or the day after. Oh, I just have uh, that feeling, hey. Like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like we're just waiting for the morning battle, right? Like yeah. that, that this is our, you know, eat, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of thing. So I think there is a feeling that people are out and about having fun because there may not be that way mm. tomorrow Which, or the day again, after. is an attitude that, could be encouraged is to make the most of the day rather than I mean it's not pleasant I'll be honest um because we're all like looking to the updates of the numbers and like oh it is so-and-so gonna be on the news conference today (laughs) well that um, that is a different you make a really interesting point because a lot of cultural differences are explained by that characteristic Mm. So in societies where they have a very high savings rate, for example, so Eastern and Asian countries and things like that, people are very used to stability, things not changing very much. You know, you think about the societal changes that happened in China in the last 50 years, immense. But in terms of the way people feel, yeah. that they look at things more long term, you know, putting a little bit aside each, each day sort of thing. Uh, whereas societies that are here and now and i'm thinking you know a lot of eastern europe russia places like that if they have money the culture is to go out and spend it immediately because you may not have it tomorrow or uh, you know the money might not be worth anything tomorrow inflation might get all something could happen to you and you lose it yeah um so you're not necessarily safe to be able to plan for the long term and therefore if you have money mm. uh then the incentive is to go out and spend it immediately because you, there's no guarantee that it'll be there. But then what happens if you get sick and stuff? Well, that, that's oh. an interesting... So this is an interesting thing. If you can be certain about certain things, uh-huh. then planning for the future makes sense. Okay, so if you can be certain that in five years' time uh, you'll still have a house, you'll still have a job, uh, you'll still be kind of basically doing what you're doing, you'll be a little bit further down the road of your career, mm. uh, then thinking about... Uh, events that haven't happened yet, low frequency but high impact events make sense. So be like, okay, well, in five years' time, these things are secure, but these few things could happen to me that would be really bad. I have an accident, I fall sick, yeah. um, something happens to a loved one. You know, I'm going to put money aside mm. for the rainy day, okay? Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're like, I don't know if I'm going to have a house tomorrow, I don't know if the whole city is going to be in lockdown I don't know if the government, which is super corrupt, is going to come and take all my stuff. Mm. Um, I've got this money. If anyone finds out I have it, they might come and take it, right? Mm. Therefore, I'm going to get rid of it immediately and get the immediate reward. So it's kind of interesting. You would think it's a bit counterintuitive logically. think if you're living in a highly uncertain environment, you want to save. Yeah, you want some certainty. (laughs) But if you're actually so unsafe that uh, even the money itself is a liability, then you want to spend it as soon as possible and get the immediate benefit so no one can come and take that away from you. I I get that, like the the live in the moment mentality Mm. is mostly true in unstable societies where those things are fleeting a really good example for the anglos out there uh when i was a kid watching television and and i don't know if it's still the case but i used to get so much british 
cartoons and mm-hmm. and uh, children's television on my Saturday morning programming. Uh, and so here in Australia, one thing that all they say was like, oh, it's such a beautiful day outside. Let's go out and have fun. And in Australia, I don't, and it's not true for England, but in Australia, every day is a beautiful day. Yeah. So I'm looking outside and I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I need to do that. I think it'll be like that tomorrow and the day after. I, I think I'll just sit here and watch cartoons. Thanks very much. Whereas in the UK, it was like, if it's a beautiful day outside and you're not out there, you're wasting it. There is a window of opportunity mm. where you can go out and really do outdoorsy stuff. Yeah. And thus, uh, you have to capitalize on that moment. You're like 15 degrees Celsius, 16 is like summer. Like oh, them. I'm watching I'm watching British YouTubers and things like that. It's like, oh, it's 28 degrees. I'm going to die of heat stroke. And I'm just like, it's winter here and we could be hitting that at some point. Like, um, <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, yeah, but, but the point is that because here in Australia we mm. can rely on the weather, yeah, we don't need to be like acting immediately. Mm. So, um, for example, if you want to get married in Australia and you plan for an outdoor wedding, that's really not a problem. Like you're gonna you go get married outdoors. You have to get quite unlucky for the weather to be bad. Mm. You leave a couple of contingencies in case that occurs, but otherwise it's fine. Yeah. Whereas if if, if you're in the UK and you want an outdoor wedding. It's like, oh, it's sunny outside. All right, we're getting married today, folks. Let's go to the... <laughs> like, it's, a, it's that same... It's that different mentality, even though you're far less certain of something. So you have to capitalise on it immediately. Just like if you're in a war zone and you're going to battle tomorrow, well, you could die tomorrow. So let's celebrate today because we not not have another opportunity. Mm. Same with those environments where you might have coming to money or something and you have to spend it straight away because tomorrow, who knows? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's only when you have a certain degree of stability yeah. that you can start to think about instability. Uh, it's yeah. kind of a weird weird situation. Yeah. No, that, it does, that does make sense and it makes me really appreciative, I guess, being growing up in Australia as a young person, because I have so much more opportunity for uncertainty. I mean, like, sure, like, um, there's, there is like COVID and all these other external factors, but, you know, growing up today, like there are so many different opportunities and it's okay to quote unquote fail and not have the cost that it was in like in the past of my parents and grandparents time where it was a lot higher and yeah that uncertainty was very real um yeah like it's definitely yeah it puts into perspective i guess i don't know it sounds terrible when i'm like i'll oh, live life to the fullest it's like live life to the fullest but <laughs> yeah well this is this is one of the great challenges of the pandemic era is that people until that point the vast majority of people thought yeah. that the next day was pretty much going to be like the day that it was yesterday and the day before that. Yeah. Uh, and so having a but, – but people have to remember that the pandemic is the rule, not the exception. We, we have lived through a period of uncharacteristic stability, unequaled in all of human history, mm. right? We, we haven't had any major hegemonic wars. We haven't had mass plagues and, and things like that. Uh, we haven't had civilizational disruptions, and but that's that's an exception. That is, there's a strange phenomenon mm. that was uh, brought about by a very specific series of circumstances. Number one, we had a global hegemon. Very rare that there is one 
superpower that is unchallenged. If you think about the United States in the 90s, it could literally take on the rest of the world combined. Yeah. Uh, so that made everything really stable. You know, there was one big cheese on the block and people weren't competing. Uh, there too, we had an unprecedented elevation out of abject poverty. So mm. on, on a scale that is totally unmatched by anything in history. Yeah, and we're um, living longer because of that. That's what, yeah, absolutely, we're living longer. And on every human field of human endeavour, we're doing we're doing much better. Mm. Uh, and yet all of that was brought about by the the levelling out of our industrial revolution, something that happened previously in just, you know, one time and place in, in Northern Europe yeah. in the 19th century being domestic, you know, d- democratised throughout the world, South America, Africa, East Asia, um, bringing up all these living standards. Yeah. But 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 all of this is an aberration. The, the, the normal state of human affairs is one of anarchy and disruption and... Uh, absolute subservience to elemental gods beyond our control, mm. um, and and that's where we will return. I mean, there, there is there is no way in which we have solved all of the vicissitudes that come with human circumstances. We've learned some things and we've yeah. improved in some ways, uh, but a lot of it is just a product of circumstance. Do uh, you think hmm. that having a hegemonic country like the US was actually a good thing? Well, absolutely, it was a good thing. I mean, they, like, they, it, you, are we better off to have like a hegemonic? Well, I don't know. <laughs> there's the wonderful quote from Winston Churchill, which is that uh, well, there's a few of them, but but mm-hmm. one in particular is that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have ever been tried. Right, and, and by that, and we can apply that same analogy. Having a global hegemon like the United States mm-hmm. is the is the worst form of international relations system order that you can devise, except for all of the others. Okay, so having a global hegemon like the United States was beneficial in a number of ways. Number one, uh, no hegemonic conflict and war. Mm. Number two, the nature of the United States, of course, it made enormous uh, errors and and, uh, hypocritical in all kinds of ways, but it had a universalist philosophy that that everybody is fundamentally created equal, they have inalienable human rights, Mm. uh, and... We have a we're freedom loving and believe in sovereignty of the individual. So that that is uh, its most basic uh, premise mm-hmm. had a, a strong universalist message that everyone can buy into. Yeah. Uh, and and three, the United States was willing to keep things open for the collective commons. It was it was willing to make internet free. Uh, the oceans free, space free. I mean, for example, here in Australia, one of the things that uh, former Treasurer Peter Costello laments to this day is that we can't tax the internet, right? Mm. Uh, and that is because the United States made it free for everybody. Uh, if it wasn't for that fact, um, governments would control the internet even more than they already do because uh, they would own the internet uh, yeah. and they would sell it and rent it out to the population for an exorbitant cost. Um so the fact that the United States is willing to provide, to, to live this utopia, if you like, uh, has provided enormous benefits that they'll never be properly thanked for because we don't appreciate the, those things that we take fully for granted. Mm. Uh, and but, but we will miss the United States. Like as China rises... Uh, what do you mean we'll miss the United States? Is it going? <laughs> well, as, as a hegemon, it has gone, right? Like mm. it, there was a time when you couldn't say no to the United States. Mm. Now you can say no to the United States. But you can't say no to Beijing. 
Well, you can, but it's not like the, the, but it will the, hurt. <laughs> but but there but there's that challenge, right? Like there's that yeah. tension. They're fighting one another, uh, and when that that conflict that that will, I mean, I, I am of the school that is convinced that conflict war between the United States and China is inevitable. That mm-hmm. it cannot actually be avoided, uh, and once that happens. Mm-hmm. People will fundamentally reevaluate the age that we had lived through before as a true golden age. I mean, when I saw the uh, the Matrix, mm-hmm. uh, which was on our movie list, but you'd already seen it. You know how in the Matrix um, they they initially created this utopia where everybody was going to be happy and and the, uh, everyone living in the Matrix would be completely satisfied and enjoying life and so on. Yeah, and they're like. But it didn't work. You know, people just didn't believe it. They kept trying to wake up from it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, so what they did is they they reframed it to this, the, the late, you know, 1990s, the peak of your civilization. And I actually do think that that will be the peak of the civilization. That if I think back to the, I mean, the new Olympics is going on right now. If you think back to the 2000 Olympics, the Sydney Olympics, the contrast could not be greater. Like you just could, different world. 2000 Olympics uh, Timor-Leste appeared for the first time. North and South Korea marched under the same flag at the opening ceremony. All the athletes walked marching side by side. That's okay. crazy. I can't believe uh, that. People just bursting with enthusiasm and hope for this new millennium, right? They had mm. just, like, you had all the horrors of World War II and, and World War One and the Spanish flu and all of that. Uh, and then 50 years of Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the threat of nuclear annihilation. But over that previous 10 years, mm. everything was improving. Uh, people were were coming together across the world and it really looked like we could reach that Star Trek utopia in the new millennia. That this was that Gene Roddenberry's vision of an intergalactic kind of spacefaring civilization where all of these vicissitudes of horrors and privations and war were the thing of the past and we're out there exploring mm. the galaxy. We could we could see, feel, and touch it, and that was the height of Star Trek fandom, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, a year later, two thousand and one, nine eleven, mm. planes crash in the twin towers, changes the world. Right? Yeah. Rise of China in two thousand and three, when Bush goes into Iraq, uh, U.S. economy is eight times that of China's. Eight times that of China's. Fifteen years later, the like China's like two thirds, and now. This decade, China will eclipse the United States. The world has changed radically in that 21-year period, radically. And now the Olympics, no one's even in the stands because of a pandemic. Like it's a different world. Mm. Uh, And so if we could think about how much things could have changed for the worse Mm -hmm. between 2000 and 2021, you would have been one of those people with a like a cardboard plaque on the side <laughs> going, the world is not, and people would have been throwing rotten food at you. Like you just it would have made no sense to uh, them at all. And yet the world is so much worse off, so much worse off than we would have anticipated at that time. And they think about our cultural things. We're not all coming together. We're all having these Twitter fights and Facebook. Remember, another another great utopian thing. The, the end of like 2000, Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, none of those things have been invented yet. Mm. So we we ha- still had the hope of the internet, where everyone was kind of like kind be, to each other, kind to each other, like like oh wow, you're from like Serbia, that's so cool, like a different um different world, and so the yeah different uh, and, and things have gotten so much worse. So, I think people are more cynical of the internet now. Like I don't know personally for me, I'm moving away for being online too much and actually, you know 
meeting people in real life, you know, within COVID restrictions, like, <laughs> when they happen, and, you know, valuing the things in my life around me. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, we all can be change makers, right? I know it's like a cultural shift, but I kind of have to make the most of what we have now. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I remember Google's original motto, don't be evil, mm. was, their, was their mission statement. Uh, and inherent in that in that phrase is a recognition of the risks of the internet that, that a major tool like Google could become evil, right? Uh, and yet we're seeing that across the board with these tech giants. And mm. so people, 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 citizens aren't stupid. Like when mm. when governments talk about fake news, misinformation, and uh, and suppressing free speech, when when Jen Psaki the U.S. press secretary says that we're partnering with Facebook to suppress free speech. Uh, the average person mm. isn't blind to it. They, yeah. they understand what's being actually said to them. Mm. Uh, it's just like when, but it, take, it takes time for people to acclimatise. Uh, like when television, when I was a kid, was the main form of entertainment, mm. uh, the, the ads that would come on TV, like people would just tune them out. In mentally, like I can't re even really remember any ads from, mm. from that era uh, because people realized what they were propagandizing. Yeah, uh, and, and I, I think the same on Facebook and yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, get, we're getting that on social media. And although, also, although I am buying shirts on Facebook, I'm a sucker for those. Oh my God, he buys the most ugliest shirts. Like, I okay, do not. I just, I do you know. Do, do you think my shirts are ugly on this channel? No, I, they, they, most of them are stuff I buy online. Oh goodness. I mean, yeah. this one's obviously just a black shirt, but, but you know, the, the other shirts that I wear. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, like dashing is, is just, the word that you're thinking. It's just so like I don't know. It's so cringy. I don't know. Maybe it's like an old person thing to like buy old things. Old person on, thing. Old to buy things online is an no, old off, person thing. Of Facebook, I don't know. It just feels like I guess no, the it's times the, are changing. It's the, it's the advanced nature of the Facebook algorithm tailoring its uh, advertising <sighs> to my personal consumer choice. Oh. Anyway, so back to the point about censorship. Um, I was on Instagram the other day and I was, I was telling you that um, looking through the stories, I have a lot of people on the left who are more, you know, um, uh, what's it called? More, yeah, basically more left. And they were basically complaining of uh, Instagram's algorithm. So what's happened in the new update is that there's a setting on your account. And I haven't figured out how to do it, but like you can, basically it's automatic for everybody um, that they block controversial content. So anything to do with pol politics or all that kind of spin that they filter it out based on their algorithm and people are complaining, being like, this is injustice. Like we can't, um, voices are going to be lost and we can't be representative. And like you said, like in an earlier video, it's the, the same people have used these platforms to, um, you know, spread their ideologies far and wide, which is fine. But these tech giants really have the power to dictate where that goes. So it's... Okay. Oh. So there's, well, there's, there's a couple of points that you, that you kind of tease out there. One, I wouldn't have a problem with it if the filter was all political content. Like I'm not interested in political content on Instagram. I mean, I don't have an Instagram account, but let's say I did. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not long enough to... To, and, and there was a filter to say, I don't want to have any political crap on my Instagram at all. Yeah. That would be fine. I actually don't have a problem with that. What I would have a problem with that is you click that filter yeah. and what the algorithm then does is allow 
uh, one side of the political thing to come through mm. to propagandize you that, that allies with whatever their Instagram is pushing at that moment in time yeah. and blocks all the other content. No, it's all about safety. Yeah, see this is, <laughs> It's not political, yeah, it's, it's safety. Who determines that is the is the big question. But but that also another thing you say is really intriguing that that it was the left that was pushing for free speech and liberal ideas and and the exchange of the internet and so on uh when George Bush was in power mm. uh, and then and then even when Obama was in power because he although he was a Democrat he did have a kind of an authoritarian bent so it was the people on the, on the uh liberal left that were really breaking down those barriers and I'm thinking of one journalist in particular probably the last fully respectable journalist in the world mm. glenn greenwald right glenn greenwald he's uh he lives in south america he's an american but he's he's a he's a gay man he lives in south america with his with his husband uh and he was the one that interviewed edward snowden now my feelings on edward snowden are decidedly mixed right i i, there are, I, I still haven't quite resolved my feelings on edward snowden but glenn greenwald the man who interviewed him is the most extraordinary journalist. He obviously he was working for the Guardian. He was on the, on the mm. far left, but then when he did that interview, he got every prize under the sun. Pulitzer got invited to like you know the Oscars, Hollywood, all this stuff. Paraded around as this beacon of smashing down the the oppression of government and liberty and free speech. Now he's almost always on Tucker Carlson and on the right. He's a left wing guy, right? Yeah. But he actually has the courage of his convictions he doesn't tolerate suppression of free speech whether it comes from the left or comes from the right mm. uh, he believes that you know when he was out there protesting the iraq war and all of this sort of stuff that the cei the nsa uh the fbi they were all kind of in the deep state um suppressing those ideas and now that they're fully aligned behind joe biden yeah. and that he's still out there Say that this is outrageous, the way that they're lying and misdirecting and betraying the American people. Uh, Glenn Greenwald is, is truly something else because he doesn't, he's a journalist first, mm. political activist, distant second. Uh, and so whenever you get a chance, if at home, look up Glenn Greenwald, just, just look up his tweets, look up what he's talking about now because yeah. that is his true honest thoughts. He's not grifting for any company. Uh, mm -hmm. He's independently wealthy now, so he doesn't worry about any of that stuff. He's in a different country, uh, but he is frequently doing interviews on on right-wing media, mm -hmm. not because he's a right-wing man himself, uh, but because he believes on principle certain, certain activism. So he's the last person who, you know, the thing with the, the, the media is that there was a time when they were on the outs using the yeah. principles of free speech and stuff to try and become... You know, to advance these things, and now that they're in the in group, now that they're within the establishment, they're totally about face on, you know, free speech and things like that. They're all like fake news, misinformation. Got to suppress dangerous ideas. We've got to yeah. deal with the YouTubers out there. Yeah, need to appease my audience. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, that's it's extraordinary how as soon as someone gets a, a bit of power, mm. how how quickly they dump their their ideals. Yeah. Um, Hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's pause here, and we're gonna go into some questions. Oh, by the way, matching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Winter clothes. Winter, winter gear. Mm. Um. Mm. All right. So we have some questions. I'm just gonna address the elephant in the room. When's the Lithuanian history video coming out? I think people are waiting. 
Oh, yes. Well, yes. well Elias has pointed it out, but obviously yeah. I'm sure he speaks for a lot of people. Yeah. So we have part one so far. We have part two. Oh, we, we have, part we have, one, part two. So Sorry. part part one was ancient Baltic, so the yeah. Amber Road. Mm. Part two was the uh, pagan Lithuanian era. Right? Yeah. Uh, and part three, which isn't out yet. So I'm thinking like a six-part series or maybe seven, uh, but part three will be the political union between Lithuania and Poland, yeah. between the yeah. Polish-Lithuania Commonwealth, obviously, uh, there was a marriage between the royal families that combined them for a good hundred and so years before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a really challenging topic, okay? And, and I have to... It, it's so controversial that I really need to bed down all of the information first. So it is taking longer than I would have planned, uh, in part because all other Lithuanian stuff comes up as well. So mm-hmm. when when there's like a you know, something to do with a power plant or something to do with the border. Like, I'll talk about that first because that's in the news, whereas yeah. the history and culture of Lithuania is more something that will stand the test of time, be a bit more of a magnum opus, uh, mm. and thus, you know, can, can take more time with what's it. What's the biggest challenge? The role of Lithuania within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is the biggest challenge because uh, Lithuania was about 10% of the population of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, mm. but it had a, it contributed a larger-than-its-share portion of the nobility, uh, and yet the nobility itself adopted a lot of Polish customs and so on. So untangling all of that is really challenging. Uh, yeah. And then what to focus on, because it was such a, an extraordinary power. Mm. I mean, there was the, the fight with the Teutonic Order and the Battle of Grunwald and, and, and just the the enormity of that challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was, of course, the, with the Ottomans, uh, the the Siege of Vienna of 1683. Uh, so it's a huge... Where, where to start and end it is such a big part of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and in the Siege of Vienna, by the way, um, which is one of the great turning points of world history, the Lithuanians weren't actually at the battle. They were off protecting all the other areas in case others mm. took advantage of the fact that the whole Polish-Lithuanian army was was off for the battle. Mm. So getting into those details. And then there was a, a time when, when the Lithuanian nobility within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth tried to extract itself from the Union yeah. and join Sweden. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating... There yeah. are so many things to look at that I want to... Cr- Keep it Lithuanian is the is the narrative. So I don't want to get caught up too much with we'll Poland, Poland, Lith- yeah. Poland, Lithuania. I want it to be Lithuania, of which the union with Poland is such a big part of that story. Yeah. So you find I think you told me before that when they had the Poland Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, it, there's a lot of history about Poland, but not so Lithuania. Yeah. Well, historians today will say, "Oh, Poland in this century, or Poland in that century." When what they really mean is the Polish-Lithuanian oh. Commonwealth. They just say Poland for short, and and there are reasons for that. Like the the language of government was Polish, so the mm. the rulers, even if they had Lithuanian ancestry or so on, or the nobility, um, they spoke Polish. Uh, Lithuanian nobles would send their children to Poland to learn. You know, to be part of the court there. Yeah. Uh, Lithuanians themselves would adopt certain Polish customs and vice versa. So it was very the the impact on of Lithuanian culture by the Polish mm. is immense, and there's talked about a lot. But there was also influence on Lithuanian culture on the Polish, mm. uh, so we need to talk about that as well. And and I don't want that to be a secret history. So yeah. and there is a it it takes more thinking and research, uh, and of course. I'm never going to learn all the Polish names and stuff from the Middle Ages, so I'll be, I'll, you'll, you'll, you'll have to put up with me butchering the <laughs> of, 
but yeah, well, uh, you've been corrected. It's fine. They're, they're more than happy. <laughs> yeah. So to answer your question, uh, it, it will come out in the next couple of months. Um, but uh, when it comes out, it hopefully will do Lithuania justice. It's just not something that's talked about very much, mm. and 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 that's a really uh, it's a real big shame. And I want to want to rectify that, but I want to rectify it in the right way. It's worth it's it'll it'll be worth waiting for. I promise. Mm-mm. No, fair point, fair point. Got another question here mm-hmm. from Dana Moon uh, on that Lith- the last Lithuanian builds a wall. Build a wall. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, what is, sorry, it's loading, your points of view about Taiwan's embassy open, no, opening in Lithuania? So, by the way, here in Australia, it's possible to say it's loading in Lithuania there's no like the internet is so fast that that that, those are words that just aren't in the vocabulary they click on it it's there yeah Uh, so what was the question sorry so dana moon asks um could you make a video about the the taiwan embassy opening in lithuania i would like to hear your point of view sure well okay the answer is yes i can do a video on that uh and and we will the taiwanese have found themselves at ever-increasing degrees of isolation. The mm. big one, of course, was the, the United States moving in the, um, its embassy in, in it was 74 uh, when Nixon went to China as part of the deal, that it would move its embassy from Taipei to Beijing and recognise the communist uh, government as mm. the legitimate government of mainland China. So when, when the Korean War happened, for example, uh, it wasn't China versus the United States or North Korea versus the United States. It was China versus the United Nations mm. because uh, China was excluded from the UN Security Council because the US government recognized Taiwan as the legitimate government of all of China. Yeah. Uh, absurd though that was. And uh, the Soviet Union had protested that decision and uh, also excluded itself. So, uh, so Taiwan did go through a long period of significant international support when there was the communist liberal west struggle right Uh, because taiwan of course was part of the democratic west but when the cold war ended and and those things started to break down and and all these countries started trading with china Mm -hmm. particularly after the soviet um, split with china in the 1960s but but certainly after the cold war it accelerated Taiwan has found itself with increasing degrees of social isolation internationally, that, that more and more countries have been moving their embassies from Taipei to Beijing, yeah. uh, China offering all kinds of incentives for countries to do that, punishing countries that do not. Yeah. And uh, even the Vatican City, even, even the Holy See, uh, is made, making a deal with China to recognise Beijing and have its embassy in Beijing. Uh, and in exchange, the Chinese will allow... Uh, Catholic priests to openly prophesize to to Chinese Catholics. That's huge. Well, it is huge, and what like it was it was Pope Benedict the Sixteenth that had created this deal. Yeah. But it fell over at the time because the the uh, communist government wanted to select bishops, and the Catholic Church was like, no, no, no. The Pope chooses bishops. End of story. Mm. This is the Catholic priests. Yeah, um, yeah, and so they've compromised in recent years. Uh, in the last year or so, there was a deal whereby 
um, the communist government would would retain a veto power over mm. who could be ordained as a bishop, which is an extraordinary power. Like no no government has ever been able to wield that kind of power. Um, Henry VIII, of course, tried and failed, and then moved his entire kingdom out of the Catholic Church. Um, so th- this uh, is huge, um, mm. and I'm not sure where that will go. So it's. People shouldn't underestimate how many Christians are in China now. Um, there are more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party. There's about 90 million mm. Communist Party members. I think about 150, 200 million Christians. Uh, Asian Christianity is is quite different to the Christianity you get in Western Europe. In Western Europe, you see people look at the, the Catholic Church as sort of you know antiquity as history. They look at the old cathedrals the gothic buildings and everything and they go oh it was part of our past right Mm -hmm. whereas in east asia christianity is associated with prosperity modernism uh we see the mega the biggest church in the world is in south korea big mega church Mm -hmm. uh so people who are christians see christianity as like a modern faith even though in europe it's it's seen as the past Mm -hmm. Uh, and so spreading in a viral way and in china it spread faster than most places because they had the underground churches yeah yeah Uh, they had a rule that said you had to be a registered organization if it had more than 25 members Mm -hmm. so what would happen is they would reach 25 members of the congregation and it would split um, and then that just spread underground through China. Yeah. The reason why the Chinese government, and I know I'm getting a bit away yeah, from Taiwan, but, 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 like... but, but I will come back to it. Uh, the the reason why the Chinese government uh, was looking at the Vatican is because the Vatican is still an absolute monarchy. It's not a democracy, right? People mm. look at the Vatican as like part of the West. It's a absolute ruler governance system, right? Mm-hmm. And the Chinese kind of like that. They're like, okay, well, they have a strict order. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll allow the Catholic Church to come in and preach to our Christians that are mm-hmm. Chinese. Mm-hmm. And remember, communism this is a big deal for communism as well because they're supposed to be atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like, okay, we will allow Catholicism to be eventually potentially a state religion in China mm-hmm. uh, as long as they work to support the communist government. Yeah. So there's a lot of tweaking around that. And, and I, I suspect, I suspect that the liberalization of uh, the one-child policy, part of it, of course, is just a demographic imperative, but another is because the Catholic Church was very strong on this point. They're like, look, we believe that people should have children, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be restricting married couples from having children. Yeah. Um, and so I think there is a there is a relationship behind the scenes there, and I want to dig a bit more into it. Uh, but one of the big compromises is that the Vatican is moving its embassy from Taipei to Beijing. Yeah. And that is probably the most profound socialization because the if if is that if, meaning when you have an embassy? Well, in yes, Taiwan it, it means you recognize that as a country. As country. Okay. Right. And okay. if you move it away, then you no longer recognize it as a country. So okay, no, you're part of China, so my embassy is gonna be in Beijing. Uh, and of all of the defections. Mm-hmm. The Vatican, I think, is by far away the most important since the United States. The United States still has its treaty with Taiwan. There's still a lot of people in, in the United States that see Taiwan as an independent country. Yeah. That sees the embassy moving as sort of like a political decision, but not really a you know, a genuine recognition. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Holy See has 
so much moral authority in so many different parts of the world. Yeah. So if you think about all the Catholic majority countries in South America, in Africa, in the uh, in the Pacific Islands, the influence that that priests have in all of these places, like you know, Samoa, for example, mm-hmm. where you know eighty five percent of the population is Roman Catholic, East Timor Roman Catholic, um, and they w- would be able to say, look, you, to those governments, you know, keep your embassies in Taiwan um, because. You know, this is a free people, and they should have religious freedom. Yeah. Uh, so, so if the Holy See moving to Taiwan is a big deal, uh, moving from, from Taiwan from Taiwan is a big deal mm. uh, because of the impact it has on all of the other countries, and also seventy odd embassies are at the Holy See, so um, there'd be a lot, like a lot of discussion around this mm. within the different countries at the Vatican. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a big question mark. I think that so so for Lithuania to bring it to the I know I've gone yeah you've rambled so much. No, 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 I don't think it's fair to say it's a ramble. I think I'm providing a lot of context to why Lithuania having its embassy in Taiwan is extraordinarily significant because it is against the tide of all of these things. Remember what happened with mm. the Holy See, which I think is the most significant, mm. has only happened in the last year. Mm. the holy see is a catholic country obviously and lithuania is a catholic country yeah so there is there is a lot of interest there so i will do a video on it exploring more of the lithuanian decision but i, I would say to sum up it's a deeply principled decision mm-hmm. and uh i would like to see um taiwan what the taiwanese have to say about lithuania as well um so i'll dig more into it and we'll do a video on it so yeah i mean Charlene say, look, you know, this is a big answer to a short question, but uh, but I think the the Holy See thing shouldn't be underestimated, and I think there is a link there. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. Uh, we watched another nineties film, we yay! Mm-hmm. Uh, on journey to culture, Charlene, and the peak of media. <laughs> I don't know. And we watched The Rock, nineteen ninety six. That's think. right. Uh, I think it was Michael Bay's first film. So before he, yeah. you know, fell off a cliff making the Transformers films and stuff mm. like that. He, he did make one really good film, a mm. uh, big action film starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage being Nicolas Cage. Uh, of course, you're always playing the crazy guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously pl- the plot is uh, a US general unhappy with the treatment of his fallen soldiers. He takes men that are loyal to him and well, some mercenaries and goes and steals some VX rockets yeah. and threatens to unleash them in San Francisco from Alcatraz unless these people are paid out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Connery, um, playing a man called John Mason, is dug up, who had been arrested by the FBI and thrown away without key, uh, who had formerly been a uh, highly trained British SAS operative, mm-hmm. uh, is... Uh, teamed up with Nicolas Cage, who's a chemical weapons expert, to go in and liberate this island uh, filled with highly trained Marines. And uh, it, there's a lot to, to say about this film in the sense that obviously it's a f- massively fun action film yeah. with a lot of character, a lot of action, a lot of development and so on. So it, it is a good old classic, you know, war sort of combat film, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a few threads that are worth teasing out here. So mid-90s, again, it's the same sort of time period as Independence Day, which is another film we saw recently, mm-hmm. and both action films, and it shows you the degree of American strength and power because in the case of Independence Day, the enemy is aliens, mm-hmm. right? 
In the case of uh, the rock, the enemy is themselves. They've, they've got yeah. their own marines or heroes. And, and, and these were the only kind of challenges that America could think up, right? Like, yeah. because <laughs> who's better than you, us? Us? Yeah. <laughs> or aliens? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It would be it was a tough it would be a tough sell to think of like you know China coming in and taking over or uh, you know or even the or the Russians being yeah. like an omnipresent threat throughout the and Cold also, War. And also like the way they present the president to make big decisions or whether to send out to bomb the island. Um, like there was just so much respect there for the president. You know, mm. like you, you just like it's the president. Whereas nowadays, you don't see that same respect for leaders. Like, no, that, you're a bit more cynical about them. <laughs> the 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 rot set in initially with Bill Clinton, uh, although mm. there was still a lot of authority around the presidency. But Bill Clinton, with the Monica Lewinsky scandal, mm. obviously sleeping with all his interns and things. Uh, kind of made it a bit of a joke but but still the office of the presidency was respected and bill clinton himself was was mm. thought of as a good president and then george bush had a, a sort of a restoration of that temporarily after 9 11 so uh 2003 through 2004 kind of period there was a lot of respect for the office of the presidency mm. uh, even among those like myself who protested the iraq war saw the presidency as an important office um, but then that kind of fell into quagmire the, the u.s president seemed to be a bit of a joke mm. uh, and then barack obama temporarily restored um sort of the the kind of authoritas of the presidency in the sense that he didn't have any personal scandals. Mm. Uh, and this is a very, this is the, I think the best thing that could be said about the, the Obama presidency is that in his personal life, he was irreproachable, right? Like mm. he, he had a very wonderful wife, wonderful mm. children. Highly uh, educated. Like, yeah, yeah did, didn't bring the office into disrepute. Yeah. Uh, and so that was good. Uh, but during the course of his presidency, the hyperpartisanship within the United States got more and more bitter, uh, in large part because of his own policies and way he dealt with Congress. So, uh, for that reason, uh, the 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 office of the presidency, while it had a respectable person occupying it, mm -hmm. was seen more and more as part of the political fray. I mean, yeah, in the United States, you've got the presidency is the head of state; it's not just an office. Uh, and so people look at the president as a symbol of the United States. And then, of course, we had the Trump years and then, of course, Biden. So uh, I don't think the U.S. presidency will go back to that kind of period. But you, you make a really good point there because also in the movie Independence Day, the president is actually a major character in the Independence yeah. Day. He says a major character and he gives the most epic speech in all of of cinematic history mm. um, and he's the president giving that speech mm. so there is um a lot of and, and then the, during the uh there's so much awe and hope and like well and, and it was interesting Leadership. daniel day lewis's uh performance of abraham lincoln the movie lincoln came out during the sort of obama years i think or, or early trump around that period and they look back on Abraham Lincoln as this sort of great legendary hero, but then sees 
like him as a human being as well. Now, I, I have a lot of, I'm, I'm personally challenged by the way Americans remember Abraham Lincoln. I see him as a far more practical guy than than most people kind of look back on him as this great father figure. Mm. Uh, and yet, you know, the image there is is very strong. So you're right there that in the 90s, they still very much had that. Uh, the other thing that I found uh, interesting about The Rock was that uh, the villains could be respectable. Um, so the, the person that is seen as kind that of, there are two people that are seen as the villains, right? Well, well one person is seen as the villain and the other one seems a bit of a joke. The villain is the FBI director, yeah. right? Uh, and the person who's a bit of a joke is the White House chief of staff, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's kind of he's kind of spat on by all the military guys, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I don't actually think that's fair. Like, he's the White House chief of staff and those military people were supposed to be more respectful to him. That includes the general who was rebelling, who was mm -hmm. like, you know, on your ninth birthday, I was running black ops into South China, so you be quiet, you're wasting my time. And then there was the guy that was saying, oh, General Hummel's a man of honor, like the, the general who was kind of talking back to the White House chief of staff. I'm like, no, this guy was a traitor. And he goes like, oh. and the White House chief of staff was right to point that out. Mm. Uh, so the the veneration of the US military, mm. uh, of course, is still in place today, but as absolutely at its zenith in the mid-90s. You see that with Independence Day, which is kind of puts the military on a pedestal, and the military guys in The Rock are also put on a pedestal yeah. uh, relative to the civilian leadership. Mm. Uh, and the there is a, a, a fantastic video that has come out on the sort of 25th anniversary of The Rock. I haven't seen it. That, that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> uh, people at home can watch it, though. So Sean Connery's character, John Mason, mm -hmm. Um, obviously, Sean Connery was James Bond in the 1960s. And there is a uh, theory video, well, theory, but has been turned into a video that John Mason is actually James Bond. And John mm -hmm. Mason was his cover name that he was found <laughs> with when he was arrested by the Americans. And, that, and it is such a persuasive argument. Right? <laughs> so if you go check out that video, just type in, uh, you know, The Rock is a James Bond film in YouTube. Yeah, uh, there is a fantastic theory about that, and I, I, I I'm persuaded. I think that mm -hmm. Michael Bay and the other writers were like, "Hey, let's make this James Bond. We can't, we don't own the James Bond name, mm -hmm. uh, but let's say this is what happened to James Bond. He got arrested by the Americans and had to be dug yeah. up to help people crack into Alcatraz." Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing about it, the ex nerve agent, the big, big bad kind of um, uh, gas that's in the in the film. Yeah. Uh, it's like normal balls. I'm like far out. That is so like impractical. <laughs> Surely yeah, they, they would design they would, it better. No, no, they would. They would. They would not have little <laughs> it's like little glass it. balls. No, no, they would have. They would have some kind of aerosol um, uh, device uh, that allows it to be dispersed in the atmosphere. It doesn't doesn't seem like it. it not only is it unsafe, unsafe. It also seems yeah impractical. Yeah, actually. like it's so unstable. And it's like oh, this is my Christmas decoration. But it looks pretty. <laughs> it uh, does. The other thing about VX is it doesn't... So at the start of the film, uh, spoilers, but this happens at the very start, like so the guy's skin's melting off. Yeah, and he's yeah. Like, that's not the what happens with VX. VX, that, 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 when, in the scene where Nicolas Cage is explaining to uh, Sean Connery what VX does to you, yeah. uh, they were half telling the truth, right? So the first half of the conversation is exactly what happens and then you know, mm -hmm. this is after your skin melts off and your back breaks from spasms and stuff. That's when they go a bit crazy yeah um, what happens is you suffocate and the mm. uh, uh kim jong-un's brother 
mm. was murdered in the Malaysian airport mm-hmm. uh, by uh, people who used like local prostitutes effectively to play a practical joke where one would spray half of it and the other person would spray the other half together made VX mm. uh, and uh, he died of suffocation. Um, so mm. it's a very, very deadly nervous agent. It's a, it's a truly tragic kind of weapon uh, and it would if you, you know, used it to attack a civilian population, do, mm. do devastating amounts of damage. There was also the um, so VX is a is a derivation of sarin gas, which was also in the um, film. That yeah. was the, in the teddy bear. Oh yeah, uh, it, they're very similar. Um, VX is slightly more advanced. Uh, sarin gas was the attack used in uh, Japan by the uh, Aung San Horatio, whatever it's called, the uh, the death cult. Um, who in the 90s did that deadly attack. So VX was kind of in vogue, if you like, yeah. because uh, nerve agents were were known. Um, and it, it, there was also the, the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s where chemical weapons were used in mass mm. on both sides. Um, and so, you know, and the Chemical Weapons Convention was, was you know, being discussed. So the, the, the dangers of, of certain types of chemical agents was... Um, was increasingly popularized hmm. um and it was interesting the idea that now i, I have no idea as to the truth of this I, I assume it's nonsense but uh that that vx um was designed to withstand napalm and therefore uh the reason why general hummel chooses to steal vx rockets as opposed to other weapons yeah. uh, is because uh the U.S. military didn't have the ability to destroy VX from the air, which is why that thermite plasma oh, yeah, was was that. not ready, and they were like desperately trying to get it ready as a as an option, mm. uh, and no guarantee, and they get it ready in the last last minute. Mm. Um, that's not a spoiler, by the way. You, you, it doesn't. I won't explain what actually happens, but uh, the uh, and yet. Um, I would I would imagine that if this had happened in real life, if 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 military officers had taken VX to this island, mm-hmm. then even if they couldn't destroy the rockets or the gas, they would still obliterate the island. Like like mm-hmm. they would they would wait for the weather to be blowing out to sea. Yeah. And then they would just destroy the island straight. Like they would they wouldn't wait. They would just destroy it. Yeah. That's what I reckon would happen. I mean, in today it's time to have all the drones that just just obliterate it, even if they couldn't destroy the rockets themselves. Mm. Um because well, At the cost of these civilians? Of course, of course. I that, that was the only thing that like so while I well they did have a lot of respect for the presidency and, and weighing the eighty one civilian lives and so forth this is not a difficult decision to make if you've got if you've got well, a bunch no, of terrorists yeah. who have uh 16 rockets each capable of killing seventy thousand people and they're threatening to to do them well there's there's you with 80 sausage yeah yeah I mean, it's it's not even a it's, it's not even a difficult decision um but the u.s was so powerful it honored every single american as american <laughs> well no, nothing wrong with that nothing and, and, and look they, they they've um, they did a few different gambles, mm-hmm. um, which we won't get into. But what I really love was the suspense. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like in in the last act, the third act, when then like one thing was happening, other thing was happening. I was like literally gripping my laptop, being like, "Oh my gosh, are they gonna make it? Are they not gonna make it?" <gasps> oh, like I haven't had that feeling in so long of just mm. like the 
yeah, to switch between the different sides, different perspectives, and you're like, yeah, you know what's gonna happen if one like fails the axis enough, faster enough. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> That's the one thing. The biggest highlight of the rock, in my opinion, was yeah, the action, but like that suspense building, and also when um they just bomb out things in the the pipes when they're just like <laughs> oh yeah, dropping dropping the the gas bombs. Down yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So it was yeah, yeah. So, uh, it was, was just epic yeah and that's that's so a good action film is one that doesn't try to preach to the audience like they they knew what the, like that's a, the soundtrack was yeah. all very heavy and like, yeah 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 uh, it was all very you know like uh, americana and so it, it takes itself seriously enough that it realizes it has to have certain beats and arcs and the plot has to make a certain coherence and, mm. and the characters have to be likable and so forth yeah um, and uh and so it has to take itself that seriously, but but not so seriously that it has some great deeper message that you all have to. Yeah, this this is a, you should be entertained, and it's very hard to do that with a action film, mm. um, whereby you have like an action film usually has a ceiling to how good it is, right? Yeah, but there there's a floor below which it shouldn't fall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few true exceptions that have gone above and beyond. Terminator Two, mm. definitely so Rob, good, so good. Uh, Blade is a lot uh, is quite underrated, mm. I think. Uh, and, and so there's certain action kind of storylines that are quite strong. Um, Die Hard, which we haven't watched yet, uh, mm. that's in the 1980s, so a bit outside of our time period. But Die Hard is clearly the mm. the quintessential awesome action film uh the silence of the lambs of action i reckon uh as is just the best um although terminator 2 is pretty pretty damn good uh and yeah so we're, we're almost at the end i think of our 90s run um of classic 90s film we haven't watched goodfellas i think that we probably won't get to that film mm. uh it's a very strong film but outside of what we're looking at what the reason why I've chosen the 90s and Charlene has very gracefully uh, agreed to watch movies, you know, in our busy schedule uh, is because there is a is a time period where the art form of cinematic experience was the driving factor behind what caused big blockbusters to be made and why various studios got together to make films. Mm-hmm. Uh, today... It feels like it, one of two things is happening, usually both at the same time. No new ideas exist, so they just make remakes and reboots and, and sequels and prequels of established franchises. But Which is just much- ironic because there's so many starving artists on the street that probably have amazing ideas. <laughs> yes, and some of it, like the, the best argument you can make for it is that a lot of it is commercially driven because yeah, true. Uh, these these blockbusters back. cost $200 million to make today, like just insane sums of money. Mm. And thus to gamble on something completely new, which could totally fall over, mm. uh, is a big deal for a studio to make when they've got shareholders and they've got people to employ and, and returns expected and so on, when they can just cruise along on nostalgia for some established franchise by doing a reboot, right? yeah. Second thing that happens is that they're all about political messaging and only one type of political messaging. Um, like if you wanted to be really like when they, when they make, you know, brave kind of explorations in 
diversity and so forth. If you want to be really brave, and I mean really, really brave, make a blockbuster film starring an openly Christian, conservative white male as the hero, not as some kind of patriarchal douchebag who's, mm. you know, talking down to all the women, uh, living a normal traditional life, and then you're being brave because Hollywood just won't go near that with a with a massive barge pole today. So yeah. Uh, so now everything is about political messaging rather than story. No, there's nothing wrong, okay, with with liking diversity and and representation in cinema, but the characters need to be the driving force. So yeah. Um, the biggest criticism of Hollywood today, and I think it is a valid criticism from the storytelling point of view is that female characters can't fail in any way. We see that with the Black Widow movie. We see that with uh, Captain Marvel, yeah. where they can't go through any challenges or shortcomings that all the male, the males have to be dumbed down and, and made into ridiculous characters so they don't take away from how strong she is. Or, yeah. yeah. And, and like Wonder Woman was so boring. Like I remember, and I think I've watched some analysis on it, like the whole plot line of, these wishes things could easily be solved like without her <laughs> in the story like that's absolutely true it's yes. just yeah. but but we can contrast it there is a 90s film that we haven't watched together because you've already seen it but it is is in my top five 90s films we definitely have it on the list if you hadn't seen it and that is mulan the first oh, yeah. the first uh animated disney mulan is one of the best films ever made of any type, and and certainly my favourite animated film. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you think about the storyline, she's an ordinary girl who's, first of all, trying to get married to bring honour to her family and be part of the normal... Remember? Chinese society, conformity, blah, 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 blah. Um, Yeah. And and she uh, fails at that. She absolutely sucks. The the matchmaker throws her out. She's terrible, blah, blah, blah. She embarrasses her family. She speaks back to her father. They have an argument. Mm. Uh, And then when... Uh, the Huns invade. Every family ha- is conscripted. She embarrasses her father publicly in front of the officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's just a, a mess. A mess up, <laughs> right? Like she's just a disaster. Uh, and then she um, does something insane. Like it's a completely half-baked idea. She cuts her hair. She dresses up like a boy. She steals the armor. She rides off to become a man in the army, pretending to be the way yeah. son. Okay? So... She has no military training. She's never dealt with men before. She has no idea what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's obvious. The first thing she does when she gets there, she makes enemies, right? Like she mm-hmm. doesn't know how to deal with other men. She pisses them off. She gets starts fights. She gets into trouble. Mm-hmm. And then it's and clear. She's like so slow compared to all the other men. Absolutely. Like, she's physically weak. You know why? Because she's a girl. Yeah. And girls are weaker than boys. And so she is a hopeless soldier and she gets kicked out, mm-hmm. right? There is a scene... At the end of the song, and this all happens in one song, right? It's really yeah. great, the whole the whole montage, mm-hmm. right? When she goes Doesn't need training, two hours, just needs a song. <laughs> just needs a song, but they, but you really see the arc in yeah. that song. Uh, so she gets kicked out, mm-hmm. and what happens? She, she realises that there is a, a challenge that no one was able to achieve. There's an arrow shot to the top of a, of a um, log, oh, yeah. and they couldn't climb up because they were given weights and they couldn't get up to clean the arrow. And she works out that if she throws the thing behind and ties ties it it together and uses as a grip. She can climb up that way. And so what happens? She uses her wit and guile, Mm. traits that 
she's not short in. Right? She's got a lot of daring, obviously. She's dressed up as a guy to be a... So they play her to her strengths mm. and get around her shortcomings. So mm. she gets to the top and she does something that no one else does and, of course, is, is welcomed back into the army mm. and is then supported by the others to get across the line. As you see, there's a point where in the next montage uh, of the same song, um, like, you know, someone else grabs the stick and hands it to her rather than hits her with it, which is what yeah. they did before. Um, so they they go off on, a, on the trip yeah. and then her natural drawback becomes a strength. Mm. What's her one of her main drawbacks? She doesn't respect authority. She speaks back to her dad. She speaks to the Imperials. Yeah. She says stupid things to her commanding officer. Uh, and so there is a lie, the greatest scene in all cinematic animated history where the Hun army appears in the mountain scene. Everybody who's seen that scene can remember it. Mm. Uh, and she steals the cannon away and against orders runs off and fires it at uh, the, the mountain, mountain yeah. and creates an avalanche. Now, obviously, the rest is history. Um, that's a hero's journey. She's she's not in any way a Mary Sue. She's not perfect in any way. It's not like everyone instantly likes her, quite the opposite. It's not like mm. she's strong in every way. No, she's a lot of weaknesses. Yeah. These are believable weaknesses and yet tremendous heroism and tenacity mm. uh, and is one of the greatest all-time heroes. And someone that I, you know, boy or girl, will definitely be getting any kids I have to watch this film Mm. Um, as a as a great role model to yeah. how to be because she she doesn't get anywhere without struggle mm. and this is the 90s when people kind of dealt with people as people and didn't look at them in terms of their representation for the rest of humanity very she's an asian girl okay mm. um very diverse <laughs> no, but, then again, but like, nobody cares about that. yeah no one cares about that but then also mm. like acknowledges the culture of where she was brought up in like mm. it is, it is culturally appropriate to you know look up to your parents to respect and have honor. You know that was a huge thing, and then she couldn't fulfill that, and that was her struggle to try to to get towards that. Um, mm. As a girl, as a very weak girl that didn't know anything, that had that was wanted to be married off. Whereas a modern day Mulan, I mean, we're not talking about modern day Mulan. She has all this power within her, and she doesn't realize it mentally. <laughs> like, it's like, what are you going to try to set up young women with? Like, denial? <laughs> Maybe. But, um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Like, it's like, and I think that's why independent films are becoming more popular mm. is because even though they, you know, they uh, have a much smaller budget, they are not going to shy away from trying to make real stories happen. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, what's the space in them is probably going downhill. It's streaming services that are are picking up so like these blockbuster filmmakers like i don't know well, well i'm hopeful that independent film can fill the role of cinema in the 1970s so in the u.s the 70s films the 70s era was about life in america yeah so you had uh rambo first blood the first rambo film is is not an action film this is what people forget rambo First Blood is just a really epic tale of drama. Mm. Uh, and then you've got the Dirty Harry films in the 1970s where, you know, cops that are basically walking the line between, um, you know, the law and justice and, and corruption. Uh, so the, the 1970s was a gritty time for American film. It was a lot of street life, a lot of mm. urban jungle, uh, but on a small scale you follow one or two characters. Uh, whereas then you know, the big blockbusters emerged by the 90s. Mm. Uh, and now, yeah, the, the 
those kind of discrete micro stories is what you can tell with independents because they're the independent budgets. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, they're still around. But. I'm so sick of superhero movies. I'm going to say that. I'm, like, such a controversial. I'm so sick of them. I don't really care, I like, how many people can fly and shoot things. Like, I'm just I'm so done. Oh, well, it's tired now. The, 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 Marvel, oh. the Marvel Cinematic Universe needed to be tied up and, and stopped with Endgame. Like it really should have, yeah. yeah. Like I'm looking forward to this is the first time I look forward to a new film in a long time, but I am looking forward to June coming out in in October. I love June. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really great uh, idea where, like the, the whole the whole universe of the sci-fi June thing is mm-hmm. is really rich because you've got um, a pre like in the pre-Westphalian Europe. Everyone was loyal to kingdoms and dynasties and houses. Yeah. And they take that and they make that a space thing where, you know, House Atreides, House Harkonnen. Uh, I'm so lost. What are you talking about? Okay. So, so Dune is, is a futuristic um, sci-fi series. Yeah. Right? From the books where uh, there is a thing called the Spice Okay. And the spice is necessary for navigators to travel around interstellar travel. Without without this spice, there is no such thing as space travel. Mm-hmm. So it's the most valuable substance in the known universe, mm-hmm. and it exists in one planet, Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all the different houses fight over this one spice because mm-hmm. whoever controls the spice controls the universe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a story of that. Now it's it's kind of. They're, they're, they're both futuristic but also somewhat anti-technology like they don't like computers and things mm. like that so there's a lot of feudalistic um dimensions to the different houses so it's very much a game of thrones and space mm. type of deal but very uh very raw in its thing and then they've got the the desert warriors the fremen uh, and a lot of prophecy and a lot of um, different kind of factions and, and sub-factions who have their own kind of spirituality and so forth. So it's a very – the aesthetic of Dune is, is very mm-hmm. beautiful. So I'm looking forward to it because it's, it's going to be something new. I mean, obviously, Dune has been around forever, but it's something new relative to what we're seeing at the moment in terms of cinema. Right? Yeah. It's got a lot of different visuals, um, a, a complete new lore. I just find it so ironic that like you're in space, but we hate computers. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, it's it's got a very classic. There's a lot of classic mentality. Mm. Uh, it's it's a very it's a feudal society. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, the, and they they have different homeworlds, and they, so we're looking like distant future where humans have and and, and look for those June fanatics. I, I might be messing up the lore a bit, so apologize for that. Um, I will catch up on the books again before the movie comes out because it'll help get me hyped. But but I haven't done that yet. So uh, the the human race is kind of spread throughout the galaxy, uh, and they've different homeworlds have become different houses. Yeah. Right? So there are massive empires that that have sprung up, and then there is there is an emperor in the middle there, um, Padashar Emperor. And, you know, he has a bunch of witches called whatever. And so there, there, there's this society and they're all struggling for power on the planet Arrakis, yeah. um, which is this desert planet. And there are massive sandworms and native peoples that, like, have these steel suits that collect all their water and mm-hmm. they live in, in, you know, deep in the desert. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on there. And, and it, it, the, the attempt to turn Dune into movies in the past has been really 
um, fraught with all kinds of production hell. Mm. Um, but the idea, I can understand why people like it's such a fascinating, rich story. So mm. looking forward to that. October, we will we will go see it and okay. we will do a review. Yeah, sounds good. Mm. Mm. Let's wrap this up. I mm-hmm. think I think we have talked enough already. Um, any final thoughts? I know there was something about videos requests. Oh yeah, so I really enjoyed um, the requests for for different segments and videos. So uh, you know, Taiwan Embassy, people being on my back about the history of Lithuania. Uh, if there's anything it. else you want to hear about, please let that down below because uh, it does, you know, obviously connect me more with the audience and community. So I really do enjoy doing those videos. Yeah, for sure. And once we hit a thousand subscribers, which is so close, so close, we'll be able to do post community posts. Mm. So that means that um, there's just more ways to interact with our community. We can put polls up and all these different um, ideas, essentially. Um, that isn't more more than just like upload a video and just wait for the comments to come through. So that's so, like what, YouTube features or something? Yeah, YouTube, yeah. more YouTube features. Mm. Yeah, YouTube is great for like dripping down like <laughs> rewards <laughs> for staying on this platform. <laughs> but anyway, any questions, any comments, please leave them down below. Like I said, if you haven't already, please subscribe on a road to 1000. Otherwise, stay safe and... Ciao for now.